How about them Indians? Quotation. Great. They're doing great. The exciting team is filling their new home at Jacobs Field and filling their fans with dreams of a championship. They're playing much better ball than anyone expected this late in the season. Of course, we diehard Indian fans have waited a long, long time for the tribe to win another pennant. There have been precious few in the 125-year history of this story franchise. Only three American League championships and just two world titles, to be exact. And they weren't always known as the Indians. When the franchise was formed in 1869, they were called the Forest Cities. Later, the Broncos, the Blues the Naps after player-manager Napoleon LaJoy, and then the Spiders, so named, we're told, because most of the players were tall and thin with gangly arms and legs. It wasn't until 1915 that they became the Cleveland Indians, named in honor of Lewis Chief Sokalexis, the first American Indian to play Major League Baseball. He roamed the outfield for Cleveland at the turn of the century. It was at their first home, Old League Park, that the Indians finally won their first world championship, beating Brooklyn in 1920. It is just a shell of itself now as it stands in ghostly silence at 66 and Lexington. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Cleveland, hello. No, that's not Larry King. That's your pal, Tim Hanlon. How are you? This is Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. And I thank you for finding us. And yes, indeed, uh, we have uh, pointed our GPS coordinates to Cleveland, Ohio, uh, that gigantic and very influential city uh, in the northern part of the great state of Ohio. And uh, we're going to get into uh, one of the palaces of sports in Cleveland's history this week with our guest, Ken Kresilovic, about, in particular, League Park, the, uh, the baseball and football park, uh, and fr- frankly, other uh, events as, uh, as well, uh, that was uh, literally the crown jewel of professional sports in Cleveland uh, from what, 1891 to 1946, primarily, of course, well and best known uh, as the home of the Cleveland Indians. Uh, and in latter years, uh, a shared uh, home with uh, Cleveland's municipal stadium. Uh, not uncommon, by the way, to see the, uh, the Cleveland Indians uh, playing day games uh, during the week at League Park. Uh, in Cleveland and and uh, weekends uh, holding down the fort at Municipal Stadium for much larger crowds and even some lights in case of, uh, of evening games. And uh, interesting little footnote, as we'll hear in our conversation with Ken Kreselovic in a few seconds, uh, League Park, uh, before its demise in 1946, was, I believe, the last major league baseball park to not have lights as, uh, as the years went on. The stadium basically... Uh, uh, came to its demise before lights even came into the picture. Although, as you'll hear in our chat, uh, there were some temporary light, lighting situations that occurred, mostly from uh, some of the uh, Negro League play, as we'll get into, because League Park, not only the home of, uh, of the Indians, uh, but uh, for listeners of this show, uh, was also the home for, for years of a bunch of teams in both baseball and football uh, that are no longer with us that we like to kind of obsess about here on this little show. You know, the League Park dates all the way back to some of the earliest days of pro baseball uh, in the U.S. in the in the 1890s, for example, the Cleveland Spiders of the of the National League were uh, one of the original, not one of the original, but certainly one of the earliest teams in, in pro baseball. But uh, as we mentioned, the Buckeyes of the Negro National League called League Park in Cleveland home. And, and actually, that's where 
uh, some of the actual night games that were played at League Park actually occurred, uh, albeit not with uh, permanent lighting. Uh, we'll get into some of that in a, in a couple a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes. The uh, football, though, legacy of League Park, uh, quite substantial. The Tigers, the Cleveland Tigers of the very first two to three years of the uh, National Football League, back when it was known as the Association for Professional, sorry, the American Professional Football Association. Yeah, you get your acronym straight. I try. At least I'm giving it a try. The Association for Professional Football. No, the American for the APFA, for God's sakes. Let's call it that, right? But uh, now, uh, of course, the NFL has gone back and and, uh, absorbed those early years uh, when it was named as such. Uh, even they couldn't keep the right name intact, in so they just made that part of the original NFL. But the Tigers, indeed, were part of that in Cleveland, and they played in League Park. And we get into some of that, as well as the Cleveland Indians and or Bulldogs, depending on the year you're asking. Uh, in the 20s was another NFL franchise that kind of took over after the Tigers fell apart uh, in 1923. They played at League Park, as did uh, probably more famously and more memorably, for successor generations that may be still alive listening to this little show, the Rams, the Cleveland Rams, who uh, obviously absconded for Los Angeles after the 1945 season. And uh, we had a couple of episodes devoted to that. By all means, give a listen for those. Uh, But uh, that's all part of the history of League Park, uh, our conversational topic uh, this week with our guest, Ken Krasilovic, coming up uh, for your enjoyment in uh, just a few moments. And of course, though, before we get into that, uh, we got to pay some bills, and we're going to uh, do so with one of our favorite sponsors, of course, and that's our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com, and that's uh, P.F. Wilson uh, and his friends in Cincinnati, just down the road from our, our topic this week in Cleveland. The uh, promo code there for you at OldSchoolShirts.com is Good Seats. Good Seats, yes, that's the promo code. You're going to get 10% off all of your purchases uh, at OldSchoolShirts.com, and like the name implies, a tremendous array of great logoed uh, t-shirts, uh, high quality, uh, distressed looking, and it's not just teams uh, and leagues of, of sports uh, franchises uh, no longer with us, but a whole hefty amount of uh, pop culture uh, places, radio stations, amusement parks, stores, and ice cream parlor, you name it, all kinds of stuff memorialized. There is a page devoted to Cleveland there that you can uh, enjoy and find all kinds of great Cleveland memories uh, in t-shirt form. And of course, in particular, as it relates to this show, a shirt devoted to the Cleveland League uh, Park uh, experience. That is the League Park uh, T-shirt. It's uh, a beautiful red uh, shirt. It's got a great image of the dimensions of what the uh, old League Park used to look like. It's a great piece. Uh, and again, you're going to get 10% off that and all of your great purchases at OldSchoolShirts.com, promo code Good seats. Make sure that uh, you check out the League Park shirt, as well as the dozens and dozens of other great shirts, not only commemorating the uh, great history of Cleveland, uh, but also all kinds of other teams and leagues and places uh, across the United States and Canada. And again, that's OldSchoolShirts.com, promo code Good Seats, 10% off all of your purchases. Enjoy it, by all means, on us and our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com. We thank them and you for listening uh, further to our great conversation with Ken Krasilovic as we talk about the old times of Cleveland's League Park coming up. Have a little background on you, uh, what your background is, who you are, and and sort of how you uh, stumbled across the story of of League Park and why you you wanted to go deep into a book uh, about it. Right. Tim, I was... uh 
I grew up in Cleveland, uh, Cleveland suburbs, and was fascinated with baseball from the time I was, you know, could watch it on TV and whatever. And and uh, the first game I ever went to, ironically, was not in Cleveland. It was at Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. I think I was seven years old, and we were my family was there on a vacation for something, and I uh, got to go to a game. And we were in a downtown hotel. We took a cab over, and we got out of the cab, and my dad got out of the cab, and he looked up, and he goes, geez, this is just like League Park when I was a kid. And uh, that was the first time I think I, I – realized League Park existed. And then when I found out as I grew up that there were remnants of it still there and a ball field still there, I was fascinated by it. I loved uh, going to the old Cleveland Municipal Stadium then growing up and always had a curiosity about League Park. And um, there had never been a comprehensive book written. And I always said I was a journalism major. I started out, I worked in college athletics, and I started out as a sports information guy, public relations type, and um, always had that interest. And I wound up getting um, hired at uh, John Carroll University in Cleveland. And the year I got hired, I was just out of college, and I was playing summer softball. And there was a guy on my team that similarly liked old stadiums and whatnot. We got to be pals wound up going to games a couple times different places and he also was kind of fascinated by league park and we always said someday we should write this and um you know he winds up getting married i wind up getting married you have kids you know we always talked about it we stayed friends even though i had left town for a couple different positions we stayed good friends and eventually i wound up back in the greater cleveland area we uh, reconnected, and um, Brian Fritz, who wound up being the co-author of this, said, uh, you got to meet me downtown for lunch one day here. I got something to show you. And so this was probably about 2007 or eight. I met him downtown at the famous Slimans in Cleveland, where they have the best corned beef sandwiches. <laughs> and uh, he pulled out this envelope of a bunch of anecdotes, little paragraphs written, different stuff. He had been going for about a year um, down to the downtown Cleveland Library, which has a fabulous uh, sports area. It is unbelievable, their collection. Well, he had been going down and going through um, the microfilm of newspapers and just kind of skimming and reading and coming up with little bits and pieces and stories and he hands this to me in this envelope and says, well, we've been talking about it forever. Here it is. I've got stuff. And I went, whoa, <laughs> and started to sort through it. And it took us about six or seven years on and off working on it uh, and adding to as we went and um, came up with tons of great stories. We dispelled a lot of things. You know, there's these plenty of these anthology books with all kinds of ballparks and a couple pages on each. And the same mistakes wound up over and over in, in these books and they were perpetuated and we, we corrected some of them, found some great stories and weaved it together into what became the book league park, historic home of Cleveland baseball. So walk us through a little bit of the process, right? So, so library, of course, so you're, you're going back in time, right? So this is more of a 
I'm going to guess more of a, a, a secondary source look back in time, historical versus first person memories and that kind of stuff. But were there any? Right. Was there any? Was there any sort of uh, 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 any direct people uh, involved in some of the stories, maybe from the uh, the Cleveland Indians uh, organization, or were there any sort of people still alive of of you know of any kind of note in this process, or was this all an historical kind of uh, investigation and dig? There weren't any decision makers. We kept trying to find people, and we came up with lots of people who said, "Oh, I'll never forget." riding the trolley down to League Park with my grandpa or my father or my mother or whatever and going to ball games. And we had that same story from, I don't know, a couple dozen people. We, there was no one left, really, that was a decision maker or was involved with the actual building or whatnot. So really everything we did came out of research, you know, it came out of, again, combing new newspapers, which Brian did the most of, um, you know, generated a lot of anecdotes and these little stories and, and things that, that we were able to come up with and, and that make not only the book, but we do like uh, PowerPoint presentations and whatnot. We did a thing at the Indians uh, Tribe Fest um, for a ton of people. And, you know, those kind of things are what really makes the story. And the fact that League Park I think has an, an inordinate amount of amazing things that happened there. It's just incredible how much the history of baseball and sports and whatnot and significant things that happened all seemed to kind of weave around League Park one way or the other. It was amazing to, to, to realize that. And in fact, the working title of the book was uh, In a League of Its Own because it, we felt like it was so unique that so many crazy things happened there and significant things, you know, Ruth's 500th home run, some big ones, you know, the 56 game of DiMaggio's hitting streak, et cetera. There were some big ones that happened there, but then a lot of these other things that kind of what you're interested in that tied in with the, the federal league and, and the early days of the NFL and the Cleveland Rams. And it just crisscrossed over all of these various areas and was amazingly interesting. Well, the publisher didn't like that title. They said, no one's going to know what that means. You know, I said, just League Park. Okay, that's what we wound up with. And the ironic thing was, to find a publisher, we were, you know, that was new to me. I'd worked in, in you know, as a writer and whatnot as part of my career in college athletics. Um, but I distinctly remember calling a fellow that, that was at uh, one of the Philadelphia papers. I had worked in Philadelphia for a while that I knew that had had a couple books published. And I said, I said, Hey, how did you find your publisher? And he said, well, what's the book? I told him a little about it. And he said, Oh, he says, it sounds like a great topic. Really interesting. He goes, nobody's going to publish it. and No one's going to read it. <laughs> I'm like what? He goes, they're all dead because there's nobody around and 80 year old people don't buy books. Well, we thank goodness found a publisher McFarland that was, you know, that takes a lot of this kind of stuff. And, um, the response has been just the opposite of what he said. We have gotten tons of great response. Thank goodness. After, you know, you were coming down the stretch of a six or seven year project and somebody tells you no one's going to print it and no one's going to read it. You know, my heart sunk. Um, but, it, it, you know, it did get printed. And again, we, we have been, you know, going around to various 
libraries, Italian American clubs, uh, you know, whatever, all kinds of different speaking engagements, um, and and get great feedback. Well, look, it also it also does have <clears throat> some connection to current uh, sports lineage, right? And we, we're big fans of sort of the the uh, the used to be here on this this little show. And exactly. and if you consider yourself a I guess now a Los Angeles Rams fan, right? I mean, you know, how many people want to go back and trace it back? But, you know, the Cleveland Rams, you know, were the, uh, were, you know, without them, you wouldn't have any Los Angeles or St. Louis or Los Angeles again or St. Louis again, Rams. And the Indians, of course, right? You know, one of the legacy uh, teams dating all the way back to the origination of the American League, right? You know, didn't just of course. wake up one day and start playing at the Jake or what used to be called the Right, and, that, and National League ball before that was at League Park. You exactly. know, and the, the Spiders, who you've had a special show on just on them in the past. So, well, so, let, so let's, get, let's start with the Spiders because th- this League Park, right, was essentially uh, built uh, for them, I won't say exclusively, but, but with them in oh, mind, right? No, it was exclusively for them. Frank Robeson was the owner of the team. Uh, he also owned um, streetcar lines in the city. You know, they were not uh, public transportation is just that today. It's public. In those days, it was private, privately owned lines. They paid for the rights to, to build streetcar lines in, on the city streets. So Robeson owned the team and he owned some streetcar lines, and the ballpark that he had, I believe it was at 40th and Payne, wasn't very good. I think there was a tree in deep, dead center field, and, you know, it was a goofy park and didn't really work. And um, he spied some land a little further east, which at that time, you know, was, you know, not packed with homes or whatnot yet. And he picked up a block of land, and that's pretty much how the footprint of these ballparks in those days came to be. And so he did pick one out wisely that happened to be where his streetcar lines intersected. So not only would he get your nickel when you to get there, but then he would get you to buy a ticket as well. So he gotcha, I guess you could literally say coming and going. <laughs> well, you know, um, that's the, you know, that's especially interesting because, you know, we, we also try to look for some themes here and, and the, the intersection between, professional sports and real estate, right, is absolutely a major concentric configuration because you look at, say, what's going on with Major League Soccer right now, right, and the must-have soccer-specific stadiums as part of the mix, and and what the Atlanta Braves have done by basically moving out of the heart of the city into the suburbs and basically, you know, plopping their their ball field literally in the midst of a a mixed-use development of you know of office buildings and restaurants and theme kind okay. of situations and stuff. So in some respects, this is almost a you know a glimpse, frankly, of the uh, the the necessary or the the dual relationship between that of of real estate and uh, the pro sports team uh, and in this kind of fashion. Well, and and you know in Cleveland, um, again, League Park ties in to what set the stage for municipal investment into teams beginning at with Cleveland Municipal Stadium on the lakefront in the early 1930s. And so that 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 story of League Park and Municipal Stadium built in 31 the Indians own League Park, the city invested, the first time that ever happened that a city invested in a ballpark and said, well, "We're going to build this and the team's going to come here." Well, as soon as they finished the ballpark, the Indians didn't move. 
in the middle of the 1931 season. They said, well, we only park. Why are we going to pay you rent and play down there? So it took them a year to come to an agreement to get the Indians to move down to the lakefront. Middle of 32, they played the rest of that season and had a lease to play all of 33. At the end of the 33 season, the Indians said, we've had three crowds here in a year and a half that wouldn't have fit into League Park. So they said, we're going back. And they moved back to League Park, which was still there and still in pretty good shape. In fact, they invested some money in it, you know, added some seats and, and painted everything up. And in 1934, the Indians were back at League Park. So that whole thing, though, that happened set the stage for what you're talking about, not only real estate, but cities investing to get teams. And the struggle that went on in Cleveland from the 30s, the early 30s until 1947 is an amazing story in itself before they finally took all the games to Cleveland Stadium. Uh, it's interesting. All right, before we get to that sort of uh, that back and forth, let's uh, let's uh, delve into the spiders for a second because the original park was uh, was made of wood as most uh, most of the stadiums were at that time in the late 1800s, right? Um, we don't necessarily yeah. go through the entire history of the spiders, but uh, a pretty interesting uh, club, especially. Uh, in their last season in 1899, maybe you can kind of describe a little bit of, of sort of the futility of, of that, but uh, but maybe how uh, successful or maybe then ultimately not the spiders were uh, yeah, with this spiders, brand new park. Yeah, Robeson moves the spiders to this new park he builds. You're right, Wooden in 1891 moves the team there. Opening day pitcher is Cy Young for the Cleveland Spiders, and the spiders not. Great, didn't draw great the first couple of years there, but by the mid-1890s, they became pretty good. Went to the Temple Cup, which was, you know, there was only the National League at that stretch, so they came up with a playoff system, and the Spiders went to the, to the Temple Cup, um, 1895, 1896. Meanwhile, Robeson, he's pretty frustrated because, as many cities had, they had Sunday Blue Laws. No games can be played on Sunday. He was he got angrier and angrier because now he's putting a good team on the field. His attendance went up some, but not to what he thought it should be, and he thought the solution would be Sunday baseball. He tried going out, you know, just to the edge of the city, went to the amusement park, Yucca Beach Park, played a couple games there, played in Newburgh Heights, just on the south side of the outside of the city limits, tried a couple of things and was in a constant fight. Well, it never worked. It never paid off. And he got more and more frustrated. So by the end of the 1898 season, he came up with a different plan. He and his brother invested into the St. Louis team and what they called syndicate baseball. You could never do this nowadays, have two competing teams, supposedly, but common ownership. So in 1899, they take the Robesons, take all the best players from Cleveland and trade, and I'll, yeah, that would be in air quotes, <laughs> they trade the best players from Cleveland all to St. Louis and trade all the worst players from St. Louis over to Cleveland. So Cleveland has an absolutely miserable team, loses, uh, goes, uh, wins, what was it, 100 and, uh, 134 losses. In fact, they lost 40 of their last 41 games. Uh, worst team in Major League history, of course. But no fault of Cleveland's or whatever. It was 
really the spite of of Robeson at that time to you know do this to the to, to the franchise. Yeah, and you say and, and you St. Louis Cardinals fans out there should know that this was the 1899 St. Louis Perfectos, and yeah, uh, they are part of the lineage of the St. Louis Cardinals that we know today. Correct. So. Uh, at the end of the 1899 season, there were 12 teams in the National League. There had been for about a decade. And Cleveland was one of the four that they kind of got rid of. So it's down to eight teams. And League Park would have been vacant. Except that in 1900, um, there was um, the American League beginning to form. And it was a minor league in 1900, but it had designs on challenging the National League. So Robeson unloaded League Park to the new owners that came in with this new team. It was, again, it was a minor league team. They were called the Cleveland Lake Shores in 1900. But in 1901, they declared that they were going to be a major league instead of being a only Midwest-based league. Many of the franchises shifted east. And they went head to head with an eight-team circuit to go up ahead against the National League. Yeah, and so ironically, uh, the the uh, the the damage was done, right? You sort of uh, kind of blow up the uh, the team that was in Cleveland, and and almost in many respects had a fresh start uh, with this new American League circa 1901. Exactly, and so Cleveland got into that league and and uh, wound up having you know pretty good run there early on, especially um, when Nap Lajouet came over from Philadelphia because he tried to jump from the Phillies to the new athletics in the American League. Um, there was a court injunction. The Phillies said, you know, we have him under contract. We have a reserve clause. He can't leave. And uh, a court in Philadelphia agreed. Um, what the American League did then was in 1902, they sent Lajouet to Cleveland. So Cleveland picks up perhaps the greatest player of that time, um, kind of on a fluke. And the while the court battle was raging that year, Lajouet could not play when the Cleveland club went to play the athletics in Philadelphia. If he was in Pennsylvania, he could have been arrested. So the team would go to Philadelphia. He would take the train down through West Virginia, across Maryland, and go to Atlantic City and hang out for a couple days. Well, the team was uh, playing the series in Philadelphia. Then he'd catch up with them after. Uh, then it finally got settled in 1903, and Lajouet could play full-time. And that's when Lajouet became the player-manager of the Cleveland club. And they named the team. He was so popular, they called them the Naps. Yeah, and if you want to hear the uh, Philadelphia A's uh, side of that story, you can go to our episode number 21 with our conversation with David Jordan. But that's an interesting uh, component there of of – uh, his story, I mean, the fact that he basically has to carve out a little detour for himself before uh, right. the club because he can't go lest he get in a, in a bigger trouble. Well, all right, well, so explain that then the rest of the the aughts, right? Because uh, it, this uh, by the end of that decade, the notion of a wooden ballpark, right, is uh, is clearly getting long in the tooth uh, across all of baseball. Uh, exactly. And so maybe you can give our audience a sense of sort of when and how uh, the uh, the next generation of League Park construction was sort of uh, brought about? Well, in 1908, um, plans went in place for Scheib Park in Philadelphia, 
and Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. They opened brand new in 1909. Cleveland wanted to get on the bandwagon and have a concrete and steel ballpark like that. Uh, there was also actually in 1909, there was another one other park was um, in Toledo for the minor league team there. Well, that was built by Osborne Engineering of Cleveland. So the owners of the Indians at that time in 1909 went and said, all right, we want in on this. We, we're, we want to reconstruct, take down the wooden structure, and build a new ballpark on the same site. And that's what happened. Cleveland winds up with um, a concrete and steel ballpark that opens on opening day of 1910. Oh, and a bit of irony. Uh, opening day pitcher, Cy Young, who had opened the ballpark in 1891 with the Spiders was the opening day pitcher. He was back in Cleveland after um, some years in Boston, was back in Cleveland and opened the ballpark a second time. Pretty uh, unbelievable to think of that. That's interesting. So, um, but so the idea of these concrete and steel uh, structures were, so how long did it take to build that stadium, right? Because there was no interruption between the 1909 wooden uh, league park and the 1910 concrete and steel league park right right well for the 1909 season the structure that's at the corner of 66 and lexington which is the team offices and the um you know ticket windows and whatnot was built it was built in 09 so that was there um beforehand and the old configuration the ticket ticket windows were at the corner of 66 and linwood so just on the north block uh, uh, at north corner of the block. Well, when they rebuilt this, they put those tickets, the ticket window on that, what would be the right field corner, that signature building, which still exists to this day. And after the day after the final game in 1909, workers came and dismantled the wooden stadium. And the ballpark was in place and ready to go opening day 1910. Well, that's pretty. It's that's pretty uh, uh, well thought out, right? You'd think that it would take longer and uh, would be a bit of a messier process back then, but that's especially uh, in that era, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. But, so but they pulled it off. Cleveland's Cleveland's got the new ballpark, and there, you know, it was it was a rave. They were drew rave reviews. Now, it was the grandstand that went essentially right field corner to left field corner. The bleachers in left left field stayed intact from the old ballpark. Those did get rebuilt eventually, and more seats were added in that corner in the lower deck come around another decade, 1920. Obviously, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on the Indians, although it's very, they're obviously right. very integral to this to this story. But uh, it's an interesting little sidebar. Uh, a couple of years later, uh, you sort of alluded to it before, but maybe we can sort of talk about it now. So there was this upstart uh, circa 1914, 1915 uh, called the Federal League. And we've had a, a couple of uh, episodes devoted to to that, that league and, and, and what that was all about and, and the reasons behind it. Uh, but you want to the, the League Park had a, a significant role, actually, when it came Absolutely. to Cleveland and its possible play in the Federal League. You want to sort of walk the audience through sort of what happened there? Yeah, not much different than in 1900 when this upstart league, the American League, came to be. They they were, you know, a minor league circuit for that one year, then declared themselves a major league in 1901 and started raiding the rosters of the National League. Same thing happens come this federal league group. They have a league called the United States League in 1913. It operates as a minor league. 
They put a franchise in Cleveland. It plays at what was called Luna Park, which was actually a an amusement park, but did have a you know a, a, a grandstand and whatnot for for football and and baseball. And that's where that team played in the 1913 season. Well, the owner of the ball clubs, Charles Summers, at the time, he was you know panicking. There's another threat to my business. So what he did was he took his top minor league club. He moved the, the Toledo team to Cleveland for 1914 so that there would be a game at league park every day, either the Cleveland club or this Toledo club transplanted to Cleveland. And so if there was a competing team, if the federal league had chosen to put a team in Cleveland, they would always be going head to head with another contest. So that's how, it got Cleveland into this and really Cleveland, it was badly hurt though, by the league with two teams playing. Um, the teams were not successful. The attendance was down for both and summers got into real financial trouble and wound up unloading the team after the 1915 season. Now that's interesting. So in many respects, the idea to sort of uh, uh, backstop and try to prevent the federal league from sort of invading Cleveland the wounds were actually a bit more self-inflicted by bringing in a minor league team to fill in all the other other dates around to sort of uh, and and hasten the demise of the current ownership of the current team. It definitely hurt them. You know that whole league, again. You look at the federal league standings. There's no Cleveland club, but there was this behind-the-scenes story going on in Cleveland, and yeah, it had a huge impact on the franchise. And what was there? What were there? What was the? There were two gnom diplomas uh, of of the uh, Toledo Mud Hens when they were playing those two seasons in Cleveland. What were they? Oh, um, it's not a quiz. I can tell you. <laughs> They were like, apparently. <laughs> and there were the Bearcats one year. Yeah, and then there were the Spiders, which were reviving the old. That's right. The origin- yeah, exactly. They yeah. thought it would be a good marketing move to revive the the name Spiders because it did tie into the uh, into the uh, uh, history of the city in baseball. But ironically, we we did find different references of nicknames based on the teams or based on the newspaper. So like when they did Bearcats, some used other names. There were there were a couple names that went around that year. So it was a unique situation. So that's very interesting. So ironically, the Federal League wound up actually uh, compromising uh, what was going on in baseball in, in the city of Cleveland, having never even having to play a game there. That's interesting. Without question, yes. All right. So let's go into the 20s then, because uh, uh, the team owner of the Indians by that time is a guy named, uh, who's a Sonny Jim Dunn guy? And, and why yep. did he decide to, to rename the park in his honor? Well, he renamed the park in his honor. <laughs> he bought the team in 1916. And again, the fifth, 14 and 15 teams were not good. Um, Dunn comes in. He acquires Tris Speaker. Huge, huge move to get Speaker uh, out of Boston. Becomes to Cleveland, becomes the player manager, and the upswing starts. So Cleveland has, you know, competitive teams in the late, in the teens, and culminates with the, you know, the 1920 World Series and that championship, and again, you talk about firsts and crazy things that happen. You know, the first ever Grand Slam in in, in a World Series, first home run by a pitcher for in a World Series, unassisted triple play, the only one, of course, in a World Series ever. Uh, still, and then we're all in the same game, Game Five in Cleveland in League Park. So, an amazing, again, confluence of things that happened there. It just is incredible. And uh, yeah, Sonny J- J- Jim Dunn buys the team. But again, one of those things that we saw in 
many of the books. Oh, well, he bought the team in 1916, and then it became Dunfield. Totally untrue. Some people may have referred to it as, as, as Dunfield because he was the owner. Not uncommon. It was Griffith Stadium, Ebbets Field, et cetera. All, you know, a lot of ballparks were named after their owners. In fact, before Dunn bought the team, a lot of people called League Park Summers Field because Charles Summers was the owner. But, or Summers Park, actually. But it never was officially Summers Park. It was always League Park. When Dunn bought it, it was still League Park. But he promised to bring a championship to Cleveland. So after the 1920 World Series victory, Dunn declared, he said, okay, now we can name it Dunfield. And so the truth is, is that it was named Dunfield, but it was only from 1921. He passed in about 1923 or 24. His widow owned the franchise for a couple of more years. So it was in 1927 then after that season, when she unloads the team, then it goes back to officially being League Park. But uh, again, the locals really called it League Park way more than they ever called it Dunfield. All right, that's interesting. Okay, so um, well, we, you know, which you can understand, right? That's sort of the, uh, I guess you could say, the owner's owner's prerogative, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Turner Field, whatever it goes on to this day. Jacobs Field, when. You know, when they opened in 94 with the new park here in Cleveland, Dick Jacobs was the owner at the time. So, you know, not unusual ever in the history of baseball. All right, we're going to take a quick, brief pause. And uh, we want to remind you that our friends at Audible uh, are offering to you, our listeners, an opportunity to get a free audiobook download uh, from their amazing array of over 190,000 titles to choose from. Uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, and that's the place to go to get your free audiobook download, courtesy of us and Audible. Uh, and uh, it's something you can cancel at any time, and you can uh, keep the book for as long as your device uh, exists. And like I said before, there's just a ton of choices uh, available to you to burn up that free credit, uh, including a bunch in the realm of our forgotten sports little genre here, uh, including uh, in the realm of basketball. If you fancy yourself a fan of the old ABA, for example, uh, two great books on the great Julia Serving that might be uh, worth uh, using your credit for. One, of course, is the uh, uh, the rise and rise of Julia Serving. It's called Doc. And it's written by Vincent Malazzi and uh, narrated by David Cromet. You could use your credit for that book. Uh, and it's a great sort of uh, interview uh, style uh, uh, background on the uh, life and times of Dr. J uh, from, uh, from all sides. Uh, but if that's not good enough for you, why not try the autobiography? It's called Dr. J, the autobiography, of course. It's written by Dr. J in, in concert with uh, Carl Greenfeld. And it's narrated by Dr. J himself, Julia Serving. Uh, and uh, you could use your credit for that book, as well as, like I said, thousands and thousands of other books, not just only in basketball and basketball history, but in a whole host of genres and topics. By all means, give them a try. Why don't you? It's risk-free, for God's sakes. AudibleTrial.com slash GoodSeats. Yes, AudibleTrial.com slash GoodSeats. That's the link. Uh, and that's where you're going to get your free audiobook download. Again, you can cancel at any time. And once you do download that book for free, and uh, after you cancel it, if you if you choose to do that, it's yours to keep. So you can enjoy uh, in perpetuity for as long as your device lives. Uh, they download a book free and gratis. 
courtesy of uh, yours truly here at Good Seats Still Available and our friends at Audible. Thank you, Audible. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you uh, joining our conversation once again. All right. Well, it's also around this time where uh, the earliest days of professional football in the United States were you know, was starting to make itself uh, kind of known, ragtag as it might be. And we've had plenty of episodes kind of devoted yeah. to the sort of the primordial ooze of what then ultimately became the NFL. But but Cleveland was no stranger to uh, those uh, those beginnings and early years of the NFL. Do you want to kind of kind of revel a bit in uh, how the NFL and League Park kind of intersected? Well, pretty good timing because, you know, 1920 uh, – uh, the, you know, we're coming up on the hundredth anniversary of of the National Football League. The NFL was founded uh, in Canton in a building that was a car dealership was where the meeting was. So Northeast Ohio was huge. The Canton Bulldogs, the Cle- Cleveland team was actually nicknamed the Bulldogs at the same time for one stretch there. There was a team in Akron, the Akron Pros. Um, you know, this was a hotbed. The NFL really, its roots are in the Midwest from Green Bay and Decatur and, you know, those towns, um, Portsmouth, Ohio, and on, on the Ohio River. You know, the Midwest was the beginnings of pro football. So Cleveland, again, right in the midst of this, and where are you going to go if you're going to play pro football in the 20s? Well, there was really one good choice, and that was League Park. And with its odd configuration, which was short porch down the right field line, it was more of a rectangular, you know, ballpark. So it really did serve football well. And Cleveland had, again, a variety of teams that came in and out, at you know, over those years um, in these early um early years of, of NFL football and again, some of the competing teams too, because there were a couple of different incarnations of the AFL. I'm sure that was one of your episodes as well. Sure. So the Tigers <laughs> quote unquote were the first ones in the, I guess the true first two or maybe even three years, no, two years of, uh, of the national football league. I guess the NFL, let's, let's be clear. The NFL uh, named itself such in 1922, but the two years prior known as right. the, I guess, is the American Professional Football Association. Uh, but but that technically is part of the NFL's uh, original history and lineage, and the Tigers were absolutely one of those first franchises playing in League Park. Correct. And, you know, the history of football in League Park does predate that because it became the site for big high school games. There was an annual Thanksgiving Day game there. Um, you know, the, what was called the Big Four in Cleveland, um, four colleges – Case Tech, Western Reserve, John Carroll, and Baldwin-Wallace, you know, that was a big deal in Cleveland, those four schools. And so many of those games head-to-head, and some of the games when they played outside teams were also played at League Park. So the football history at League Park does predate pro football, um, but also went simultaneous with the pro teams, really, uh, all the way till the end of the end of League Park's life as a stadium. So what was... So what was the relationship of the early, and we'll get to the Rams in a minute, because that's a sort of a different sort of ball of wax, I think. But, but, what, but based on your research, what was the uh, sort of relationship between the park uh, and the Cleveland Indians as owners of, of the park uh, with, say, the Cleveland Tigers in those first couple of years of the NFL and then the uh, Indians football slash 
bulldogs of the NFL in the latter part of the 20s? Was it a a rented, you know, ownership kind of thing where they paid rent these these football teams, or was there any financial relationships, or was there any friction, uh, say, in terms of dates and and usage of the field and chewing it up and all that kind of stuff, especially when this I'm I'm not aware of any um, uh, financial uh, dealings with the Indians ownership and the football teams. Um, that I'm, I'm not aware of it. I guess it's possible, but as I understood it, it was always a rental situation, but clearly major league baseball and the Indians, you know, took dibs on the field because there were years where if there was an early season game and the Indians were still playing that an early season football game may be played at Akron or somewhere else. Um, instead of tearing up the football, uh, the baseball field at that point. So that happened a couple of different times when, and football really didn't take grips until October. When the Rams come about, and obviously they, there was a, a, a bit of a, a murky sort of a, a birth of them, right? Having played in the second American Football League in 1936 and then, Correct. Uh, then in the NFL itself in 1937. Uh, all the way, I guess, until 45, but they took a year off for 43 is during the war and all that stuff. We yes. talked about that in certain other episodes. But um, so, you know, as the Rams come into the into play at, at League Park, um, it's a little uncertain to me as to why perhaps that they, you know, were in League Park versus, say, uh, Municipal Stadium, which, which was built when? Well, Municipal Stadium opened in 31, okay. so it was already established, well-established by the time the Rams came in in 36. But again, the rent was higher. It's 80,000 seats. Did the NFL in the late 30s need 80,000 seats? And the answer is no. They didn't need it, and it was more cost-effective to play at League Park. So, again, the city of Cleveland was extremely frustrated with this situation. They had spent, you know gobs of money, almost $3 million in the early 30s. Sounds like nothing today. You can build a good scoreboard. You can't even get a good scoreboard for $3 million. But in those days, um, you know, it was a huge investment. And here they are frustrated. They couldn't get uh, the Indians in there full time. They couldn't get pro football in there full time. They're filling it with, you know, all kinds of events to try and, you know, show that it was a, a good investment for the taxpayers, but I'm sure that they were very frustrated, and it was an ongoing fight between the ballpark uh, at League Park and the city owning Cleveland Municipal Stadium. So, yes, you know, the the Rams decide to play at first at League Park, and in fact, they went a year to what was a high school stadium was a huge high school stadium, somewhere around 18,000 seats, but they went there for a year. You know, again, it was negotiating and then 18,000 seats was enough. They did wind up playing a couple of seasons at Cleveland stadium, but again, the, the crowds didn't warrant the cost, the higher rent to play down there. And they wound up back for their last few years of existence back at league park once again. And um, that's where they, one that actually won the last championship, won the championship in their last year, I should say. But the interesting thing was they did, they had that great year in 45. The war is closing down. Troops are coming back. Pro sports is really taking off. And all of a sudden, 
they wanted to, in 45, they wanted to move games from League Park down to Cleveland Stadium because they knew they could sell more seats than League Park had. Problem was, they had a lease, and they were stuck playing at League Park for the 45 season, had a couple of huge crowds in there. And then finally, for the championship game, which wound up being, of course, their last game before moving to L.A., was at Cleveland Stadium because the lease didn't cover the potential of a playoff or a championship game. So the club, the Rams were able to negotiate a deal to play that one game, the championship in late December of 45 at Cleveland stadium. But there was lots going on then because the new Browns had already been announced. They had, um, uh, you know, the great owners set up to come in and have the, have his team there and Paul Brown, I'm talking about. And, um, the Rams couldn't get a lease to go down to the stadium at that point because the Browns now had a lease. They beat them to the punch and had a lease for 46 at the stadium. Meanwhile, quarterback Bob Waterfield of the Rams was uh, out of Southern California. He had a Hollywood wife in uh, Jane Russell. And so the owner of the Rams said, I'm going to L.A. Well, actually, the, the NFL blocked the move at first because they said it's going to cost us a ton of money. And he said, I'll pay the difference of what it would have got you to Cleveland and send your teams to L.A. to play us. And that's really how that deal came about with the Rams moving. Had it not been Waterfield, had it not been Jane Russell, Cleveland might have had two NFL teams. They might have had the Rams playing at League Park and they might have had the Browns down at the lakefront. And for you completists out there, you want to check out our other episodes. Uh, per- perfectly timed with uh, Jim Selecki and uh, Andy Piasek on uh, on both the uh, the the Rams and that uh, those last couple of years, and then the move to L.A. and the Browns coming in from the AAFC and, and arguably being uh, perhaps one of the greatest dynasties of, of pro football. So very yeah, interesting that League League Park saw its share. Uh, of quality so what were um you know and you have some really cool pictures in this book of of sort of the uh, uh of how some of the different uh, layouts and stuff there's a press box uh looks like a temporary press box and uh, how the rams uh, sort of used league park but any uh indication as to uh how much reconfiguration or uh i don't know fan inconveniences or or uh or seating arrangement changes that might have uh, gone uh down because of uh, playing of, of gridiron football versus uh, baseball in that stadium because it wasn't built for football per se right correct absolutely but again because of the layout because of the the block that mr robeson picked out and because of those trolley lines in 1890 um you know it did it did work well for football the third baseline double deck grandstand you know went right along the field it was an awesome view and what they did was of course Folks that aren't familiar with League Park, the right field had a high wall similar to um, uh, the Green Monster at Fenway. Well, that ran along, you know, behind that uh, uh, other side, other uh, sideline. Well, there was that whole area of what would be right field there. Yeah, and you're right. They did build a. They would put a temporary press box for the Rams games that would be a kind of against the wall, and in front of that there were. You know, they would bring in temporary bleachers so that there was seating on both sides of the field. So, uh, and in fact, there was one time where, you know, some of the bleachers collapsed and they kept the game right on going. Um, but uh, yeah, there was some accommodations made for football. Absolutely. All right. I don't want to uh, miss out on another part of the baseball story here, right? And that's uh, the Negro Leagues and in particular, uh, the Cleveland Buckeyes, uh, who yeah. were uh, very much an integral part of 
of League Park during uh, during the 1940s. And do I? And now this is my presumption. So tell me if I'm off base on this or not. Uh, it seems to me that the Indians, right, as the owners of League Park, uh, seem to kind of show more than just a few dalliances towards a municipal stadium as those as the years progress in the late 30s and then into the 40s. Uh, it seemed like there were more and more games, whether they be, you know, weekend games or I guess the occasional night game, right? Because mm-hmm. League Park was never, this is an interesting piece of trivia, right? It was never lighted Correct. permanently. And I think it was the last park uh, to be played in the Major League Baseball that never had lights. Permanently. Well, Wrigley, of course, went until... I, Fair enough. The 80s. That that went on and, and and is no longer with right. I was I was still with right. Them. But right. Um, so, but it seems to me that the Negro Leagues and in particular the Buckeyes team, am I correct in assuming that they kind of saw a gap as the Indians started to kind of uh, cast their eye elsewhere besides League Park, and they decided to fill that, or or is it just different market altogether? Well, again, again, remember you, you know they owned League Park, so they had this trump card you know, in negotiations with the city every time they would go back to the city and they'd say, we don't want to pay you this much rent. Okay. We'll only take these games there. So they started to make, you know, wise financial decisions. What happened was after the Indians had moved out, we touched on this earlier after the 33 season, 34, they play all their games in, in back at league park comes 35. All the games are at league park, but in 1933, they started something called the All-Star Game in, Ch- in Chicago at Comiskey Park. Well, in 35, they awarded the game to Cleveland. And, of course, Major League Baseball said 80,000 seats. We're going to take the All-Star Game there, not to League Park. And the Indians, you know, the light bulb went on above their heads. They said, wait a minute. We don't have to take all our games there. They sold out. They saw that this All-Star Game sold out and made all this money. So the next year in 36, they said, well, we're going to take a Sunday game against the Yankees down there. And see how we do. So they promote the game, and they draw 60-some thousand people. That's filling League Park, you know, two and a half times at least. And they made that gate on one day. So it's all about the money, folks. It's pro sports, whether it's the, the teens, the 20s, or the, you know, the next century here. It's about the bucks. So Cleveland decides to start taking key games, especially Sunday games, down to Cleveland Stadium. In 39, they install lights. Lights had started at Crosley Field, I believe, 35 or 36. They put lights, City of Cleveland puts lights in the stadium, so now Cleveland starts to take some games away from League Park on week, weekdays as well, playing an occasional night game down at the big ballpark. So Cleveland Stadium, you know, and that fight between League Park and Cleveland Stadium continues, but you're right, more and more games kind of make their way over time to the big ballpark because it becomes more financially viable. So the Indians are basically uh, uh, the, uh, the owners and getting paid by the, by the Buckeyes and I guess other, other entities too, right? Uh, as right. Landlord, right. So certainly within their, you know, within their realm, they own the ballpark and they still want to, you know, get the most value they can out of it. So yeah, they're renting to the Buckeyes, Western Reserve University, one of those big four teams we mentioned, they were making a stab at trying to go um, big time in college football at that time. They scheduled Pitt, West Virginia, some bigger, you know, more named teams uh, trying to elevate their program. So they're playing at League Park. So it was within, you know, certainly 
something that the Indians, it's a good business for them to make money off this piece of property that they own. And again, to the dismay of the city of Cleveland. So it wasn't until Bill Veck bought the team during the 46 season that that tide finally turned. And after the 46 season, Veck negotiates a deal uh, to take all the games back down to the big stadium for the 47 season. Again, the Bossard family is the grounds crew. Now they're taking care of the stadium. Well, they kept keep kept on taking care of League Park, too, because the Buckeyes are playing there, and there's football going on there every fall as well. So, you know, the Indians have an investment. They have a piece of property. You can't just shut it down, and, you know, they needed to make some money off it. So it was fortunate for them. And, in fact, there was a time where they did talk about um, the Buckeyes talked about adding lights to League Park um, because they were paying $2,500 per game if they played a night game at Cleveland Stadium. That was their rental charge. Well, the lights were 10000 and the installation was five. so in six games they could get their investment back. Well, it never happened. They never did put the lights in, and, of course, the decline, another story for you, you know, the decline of the, ne- the Negro Leagues after, after the integration of the major leagues in 47. So Negro League baseball, you know, really dropped off. And fans didn't want to go. They wanted to go see Jackie Robinson play. They wanted to go see uh, Satchel Paige play with the Indians and, and, and Larry Doby play with the Indians. So um, that was the demise not only of the Negro Leagues, but ultimately became the final demise of League Park. Yeah, that's ironic that uh, and Satchel Page obviously uh, made plenty of treks to uh, to League Park uh, to compete against the Buckeyes and wound up then uh, being part of uh, Vex team uh, in uh, in '48 playing for the Indians across town. So, but you yeah. know, it's also interesting too in your as you discuss uh, the Negro Leagues and the Buckeyes, uh, which had a very interesting uh, history. I'm mostly '43 through '48 and couple of dalliances in Cincinnati and Louisville along the way. But um, there's an interesting picture on, uh, on the, if you're reading at home, chapter uh, uh, chapter uh, chapter 6, page 134. Uh, there's a very interesting picture there of League Park uh, circa 1949. Uh, right. And uh, it, it's amazing to see all of the uh, housing and other construction uh, that now, uh, by the, that time, had surrounded the park. I mean, it literally looks like it's, you know, sticking out like a sore thumb amidst all this other uh, megalopolisness, if that's a word. Uh, and <laughs> You're you, right. You could see how tight and or how constrained, I guess it was, right, in terms of its uh, maybe ability to, to do more and be more as as the years went on for, for other sports and other events. Well, again, remember in the 1890s when that lot was picked, you know, there were not private automobiles. You know, you got there by trolley or your horse or you walked or whatever. So... Yeah, as the ballpark grew and that area around it grew, it was not conducive to parking. And, and, you know, there were, you know, people made, you know, a quarter a car parking and they would squeeze as many cars on their front lawn as they could. And, and, you know, that's what that neighborhood was. And you're right, 49, that picture you're referring to, an aerial view where you can see it was just jam-packed with, there were some businesses and, and, of course, you know, plenty of housing. But once League Park went out, once that 1950 season, uh, the last year of the Buckeyes, they fooled mid-year, and a new owner gets the team from Vec, signs a deal to stay at the stadium, and part of the deal, to the city's relief, is finally 
it, the deal includes that the city takes over the space that is League Park and says, all right, that's, that's going to be the city's, the city will own this. And what they did was they began to dismantle it then that winter of 50-51. Before we sort of get into what it is now and sort of its legacy, what other uh, things went on at that park uh, besides uh, baseball and uh, and football? What kind of events, what kind of uh, concerts, just other things? Because obviously, you know, uh, despite having Municipal Stadium there since the, I guess, the, the 30s, uh, you know, the League, League Park was probably you know, one of the uh, prime venues uh, in the city and metropolitan area of Cleveland uh, for, I guess, any other event or spectacle, right? Things like boxing and, and those kinds of Absolutely. things? Absolutely. Boxing was, was big there. really wasn't much else um, in terms of concerts or anything. But there was, we did come across, since the book was published, we came across in 1916, there was an opera held at Lee Park, uh, the Siegfried Opera. Uh, took the took the field space and was presented in League Park. But you're right. If there was going to be a big gathering, that was by far the biggest space in Cleveland prior to um, you know pr- prior to Municipal Stadium being built. Now there was the indoor public hall, which got built um, in the 20s downtown indoors and became a boxing venue and a basketball venue. Um, but indoors. It was different. The out, biggest outdoor space was League Park until, you know, Cleveland Stadium came about in 1931. So its demise and its uh, its memory, right? So so it has become, what is it now? I'm not, I don't live in the Cleveland area, but it, it, it was a, a denoted as a national historic landmark, right? Wasn't it along the way somewhere? Yes. And that was in 79. There were um, several attempts to try and revive this because Again, the, the, the area around Lee Park after the team left, that became, you know, a really downtrodden area. A lot of the housing became, you know, uh, uh, vacant. Um, it was not a good area of the city by any means um, over the next several decades. It really was in decline. Um, but in, uh, there were a lot of people with nostalgia for the park. And the leader, honestly, being a fellow named Hal Levowitz who was the sports editor of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. He had been at the Cleveland News before that, went out of business in, in 1960. He wound up at the Plain Dealer as a sports editor and, and really longed for the place. And in 79, there was the first effort to try and say, hey, there's still this field here, because, again, the city took it over as a park. And kind of unusual, you know, Everett's Field gets plowed under and they build apartment buildings and Forbes Field winds up on Pitt's campus because it's right there and et cetera, et cetera. None of these places, very few would survive, certainly not as a ballpark, but there was a ball field there and that in the 50s. And in the 60s, it was largely used by a lot of the Cleveland high schools, the premier games. They left some of the seating up and, and it was supposed to be the premier area they actually built a, a city pool at one point down in one of the uh down the left field corner uh there was a basketball court down the right field corner um you know that's how this place m- miraculously survived all of these years and um Lebowitz, mr Lebowitz at the plane dealer decided he was he kind of got behind there was an effort to try and do something and so he really trumped it up with a couple of columns in the Plain Dealer. They, they had a big to-do, invited some old players back. I was uh, um, 
just into college, uh, and I went down there. They had a, a celebration on a, on a day, and the, Bill Wamsgans, the fellow who turned the unassisted triple play in 1920, he's standing out there describing on the field how he did it. Um, what a cool day it was. Um, and it raised a little bit of money, but not nearly enough to do what the hope was, and really the effort fell apart. There was a councilman from that area of Cleveland, a woman named uh, Fanny uh, Lewis, who um, you know, then took over the charge later into the 90s and whatnot and said, you know, we, we, we need to do something with this. There's all this history, um, all, all of these famous people and things and pl- that, that occurred there. And so um, she kept pushing. Um, unfortunately, she passed right uh, before the city finally did come up with funding to completely renovate the field. They uh, put all new fencing, recreated the famous right field wall, which is, again, higher than the one at Fenway Park. So they, they did a recreation of the wall. And now you can go on that field and play in the exact spot where Cy Young towed the rubber and Bob Feller did. And you can stand in the batter's box where Ruth hit the 500th home run over that famous wall. Um, and, th- and that is all there today. And then that ticket office and office building, two-story building on the corner in um, what was right field, that survived as well. That was used, oh, it was used as a kind of a community center and whatnot. It had gotten pretty beat up and run down, but the building still was there and they fixed it up. And uh, the city made the investment to fix that structure. Uh, now there is a museum there. A fellow named Bob Zimmer had a fantastic collection of, of um, baseball memorabilia. Uh, and his what he calls the Baseball Heritage Museum is now in that building. And he has a lot of League Park uh, items, but also things his interest is in, whether it's uh, – Dominican baseball and Mexican league and Negro leagues. So he has lots of different things like that. And of course, even uh, amateur baseball in Cleveland, which was huge uh, back in the uh, 19-teens. There's uh, tributes to that and whatnot. So it's really a neat, it's a small museum, but it's very, very cool. Definitely worth seeing. Um, and, And again, ties into this whole aura of history. When you walk on that area and think, oh my gosh, what all has happened here? And you can still picture it. And that's what's really cool. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And um, I, I guess one last question is, is how much, if anything, uh, do the Indians pay homage to the field at all in their current iteration? Or is it pretty much uh, uh, in their rear view window, window at this point? Well, I would say the Indians are, have been supportive of the ballpark, of League Park. Um, Major League Baseball this year has reserved League Park for the week leading up to the All-Star Game this summer. They haven't announced what's going to go on there, but there are so many things going on in Cleveland this year. The All-Star Game has become really a whole week-long festival. So there will be something going on down there. But the Indians have been very supportive, and they do, uh, they do a, a pretty good job of um, – honoring their history. They have a neat in, in uh, progressive field. Now there's a very cool outdoor um, uh, area with plaques and whatnot. In fact, a plaque that hung at league park uh, honoring the 1920 uh, season and the death of the Indians uh, shortstop at that time um, that hung in league park is now in that area at progressive field. Um, so that area and what they have done is very uh, Recog- makes great recognition of League Park. In fact, if you go 
around uh, on the concourse and the lower deck just to the third base side past home plate. And if you look closely at the concession stands that are there, they are built in tribute to League Park. They have brick archways. There are large paintings of ballplayers from that era. There are a couple of plaques that represent some of the stories that happened at League Park. So they really have done a great job of recognizing their history and uh, inside the park and out. You know, they have the statues and whatnot outside. It really, uh, I give the Indians uh, organization uh, great kudos for the things they have done. Well, so there it is. There's the uh, the admonition to our listeners is uh, if you're considering going to Cleveland this year for the uh, for the baseball all star game and all the festivities, uh, you owe it to yourself uh, to go check out the uh, the the old and still there League Park or the remnants thereof, mm-hmm. uh, as well as what's uh, remembered in Progressive Field. And I'm sure Ken will be more than happy to autograph uh, purchased copies of his book as you uh, <laughs> uh, go back in time. Uh, and uh, and explore and uh, and see for yourself uh, all these uh, uh, great little uh, tidbits that we've uh, frankly just scratched the surface with in our in our conversation today. Ken, this has been pretty cool. Uh, you want to give us a little bit of uh, promotional goodness for uh, the book, uh, which, by the way, I, I have to say is um, uh, you know is is very well written. It's very uh, tightly uh, uh, put together. The uh, the pictures uh, are 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 tremendous. They uh, seem to uh, you've got even an interesting thing in the appendix. Uh, we were talking before about the renamed, at least for a few years, Dunn Field. Uh, mm-hmm. In the appendix there in the back, there is literally the seemingly ahead of its time uh, season ticket brochure that describes in great detail, including, you know, scenes of what your seats will look like, depending on where you're sitting. Uh, it's, exactly. it's 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 beautifully reproduced. And it's just it, it is about as comprehensive a book. I have seen dedicated to a particular stadium. So kudos. But uh, how can our uh, listeners find it? And uh, what else do you have up your sleeve, uh, maybe beyond this book? (laughs) Well, um, it's easy to find. Uh, If you uh, type in League Park book, it'll come up. It's it's officially, it's League Park, historic home of Cleveland baseball. Um, But it'll come up. Uh, My name, Ken Krasalovic, and my co-author, Brian Fritz, uh, are the authors of the book. And uh, it was published by McFarland. You can get it straight through the McFarland uh, website there out of North Carolina. But it's on, uh, you know, uh, the usuals, Amazon, et cetera, Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can find it on, on, on most of those uh, places. It'll come up at lots of different bookstore sites. It also is available at uh, that museum at League Park itself, it's available there. Uh, they use the book uh, as a way to raise donations. So uh, it comes with a donation to the museum. In fact, it's free entrance uh, to see the museum, but they do ask for donations. And if you make a donation of a certain amount, you get the book. Um, so, yeah, and I'm down there sometimes. So, yeah, if I'm there, I'm happy to sign it. Brian and I, again, we do lots of uh, uh, speaking engagements and whatnot. So uh, it's it's easy to find uh, if, if, if you Give it a little look, you'll you'll come across our book. Um, also, if you're interested in League Park, um, I run a Twitter site that's uh, League Park Cle, uh, League Park C L E, uh, and we post. Um, this book could have never come to an end because we keep finding more great pictures and, you know, little tidbits and stories and different things come up. So when we find that kind of stuff. 
um, that's where it goes. It goes on the Twitter site. So we'll find a new picture that we've never seen before. We'll post it. Um, we'll put the information. Uh, we, we denote famous dates in League Park history, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm amazed at how we can, it just continues to, to add uh, followers of our site. So League Park Clee on uh, Twitter, if you're interested in uh, old ballparks in general and League Park in particular, uh, we have lots of stuff on there all the time. Uh, and, and just try and tie it to whatever's going on. And uh, we've come up with some neat things. We didn't even talk about, um, you know, a lot of the famous events. The ni- two, uh, 1911, the first uh, uh, purported all-star game took place at League Park after the uh, death of Addie Joss, unfortunate death of a great Cleveland pitcher who's now in the Hall of Fame. Um, and in 1911, they had a fundraiser for his family and the American League All-Stars played against the Indians uh, in 1911 at, at League Park. So uh, that's outlined there. Um, it's just, it just goes on and on. And again, the anecdotes, the little tidbit stories, the crazy, funny things that happen down there, we have plenty of them in, inside the book. All right. Well, save it for the save it for the book that people need to buy. And we appreciate <laughs> all this. And I was only half joking, I guess, apparently that Ken will be uh, out there and about and uh, with uh, with Sharpie in hand. And uh, I guess he'll sign copies if uh, you know. And I think, look, that's maybe also a cool uh, maybe even uh, better way to buy the book. Obviously, we'll have a link to it on our website and all that kind of stuff. And of course, we always enjoy when people, you know, click on the link and give us a couple of shekels, keep our, our episodes going. But uh, what better way, frankly, than to uh, more genuinely buy it actually at the park itself? It's such part of the uh, the story and stuff. So, look, I wish you continued success with it. And um, I also appreciate your uh, uh, squeezing some time in between your uh, your umpiring duties uh, to talk to me about this <laughs> among book. Among other things. Yeah, and I, <laughs> among other things, I'm sure. And I uh, hope a few other books uh, get sold because of this uh of this thing. I learned a lot. And, uh, you know, I haven't been to Cleveland in a while, but uh, obviously next time I go, I will make it a, an effort to uh, to go and actually see this because it's uh, it's still there, which is rare to say. You can't say that about a lot of uh, former ballparks with uh, all this great history that, you know, that uh, are actually still, you know, in some form or fashion, uh, somewhat close to original incarnation. There's a couple. Tiger Stadium now has, has a field there. Uh, Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. Uh, there's a field on that spot, but again, uh, you know, this goes back to 1891. So to ha- to uh, it is purportedly the oldest major league field that is still uh, in operation, where you can still go to and play baseball on that site. All right, our thanks to Ken Kresilovic for a wonderful discussion about uh, the history of Cleveland baseball, uh, League Park, Cleveland football for that matter, and uh, a bunch of other teams that uh, we uh, can now at least put a little small little check mark next to that we've actually uh, we've talked about, and, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll go deeper uh, as the months and uh, God forbid years go on. Uh, the book, of course, is called League Park: Historic Home of Cleveland Baseball, 1891 to 1946. Uh, it is written by Ken Kresilovic and his co-author, Brian Fritz. Uh, it is published by our friends at McFarland and & Company. And, of course, you can find that wherever good books are sold. But, uh, of course, we encourage you to buy the book through uh, the direct link you will find on our website at uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode about League Park and Ken and our conversation uh, of which. And uh, in there, you will find a link uh, to the book. And uh, by doing so, you'll give us a few shekels when you do so. 
Uh, and again, that's good seats still available.com. That is the locus for all kinds of information about the show, what we're doing, what we're up to, what we've done in the past. My God, we've got over 110 episodes now. Uh, so by all means, give a, a chance to to listen and download and uh, link to whatever you want to do with all those episodes. They're all yours for you. And hopefully you enjoy them and uh, weigh in with your commentary. Uh, and you can also send us email from the from the site. You can send us uh you can sign up for our newsletter, uh, which we send out each and every week. Uh, and of course, you're going to find all of our social media links there as well. And again, if you're on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, if you're on Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. And uh, if you're on Facebook, you'll find a page devoted to us there, too, for God's sakes. Uh, there's no shortage of ways to uh, to follow and or interact with us here at the show. And we encourage you and appreciate you doing so in all of those many different forms. We also want to uh, send our thanks and a tip of our Cleveland Indians or Spiders or whatever baseball cap to our pal Jerry Payne, who, of course, this week has gone through uh, hell and high water to make sure that uh, my rough and jagged uh, edged pieces are nicely and smoothly put together into something comprehensible. And uh, he, of course, at Podfly Productions, uh, the experts in helping uh, podcasters do what they do, uh, check them out at podfly.com. Net. Thank you uh, tremendously for listening this far. We look forward to talking to you in the next uh, couple of weeks. And for now, the box office is closed. Take care, everybody. 